if you've been with us for a little while, uh, we sent out these uh, things that we call worship primers on the weekend, and you received one uh, this morning. And the, the title of the worship primer was when self-help does harm. And so we were talking about self-help. And here's what I said in the very beginning. I said, we're a culture of trends, right? We have all different types of trends in our culture. We have man buns. We have mood, mood rings. Remember those when you wore a mood ring? We have uh, planking. Remember when that was a thing? Vine, that's gone. I think it's gone. I don't see it. Do it for the vine. That's gone. We have that, and we also have WhatsApp. You know, for the 90s kids, you remember that? That was happening all the time. So we have these trends, but then we also have trends that have become movements. So we have Apple products, right? That was trendy, and it's become a movement. We have ride sharing. We have active sportswear. We have streaming services, and we have Fast and Furious, which for some reason they keep making movies. I mean, they're at like 27 now. I don't know. They're just continually making Fast and Furious movies. But see, movements are things that are at one time trends, but have become permanent. And at least they seem permanent to us. It's hard to imagine a future where Apple isn't dominating the market. But see, what can happen is that eventually movements are taken over by trends that become movements. I was thinking about that this week, and I was wondering, you know, what if we started a trend that became a movement where we overtook activewear and we made casual, baggy clothes with weird logos that you win at, like, a free T-shirt contest? That became style. Imagine that. How amazing would that be? Walking around Brickle City Center, people are wearing, like, team-building exercise shirts, like, triple X large. But see, it's hard to imagine that. But what happens is all of these movements that were at one time trends, when it's a movement, it's hard to imagine a world without it. And we're not going to talk about self-help tonight like I talked about in the worship primer, but there are other things that were at one time trends that has become a movement. And one of them is this. It's a movement of being anti-religious. Maybe you sense that. Maybe you feel that. Maybe you speak like that, right? Like, and, and self-help and being anti-religious kind of work together because there's, with the self-help rise and the movement of self-help, there's this desire to create and to care for and to generate your own spirituality. You want to grow your spirituality. It's a good thing. But what's happened is you've said, we want nothing to do then with anything religious. And so there's an anti-religious movement that religion is unnecessary and really undesired. Now, I want to be careful to distinguish religion in, in two places. You have religion as an organization or an institution, and then you have a religion as means of salvation. And what you're going to see tonight is that Paul, when he's speaking in this passage, this entire letter is written to churches in this area of the world called Galatia, modern-day Turkey, where they're being convinced that religion needs to be added to their faith in order to be saved. It's not about religion as an institution as much, because religion as an institution, I would actually argue, is good and is necessary uh, and is inevitable in many ways, right? Religion as an institution is really a place you can come together with like-minded people uh, from diverse backgrounds and different places in life and have a common set of beliefs. You can find community. You can see your talents kind of grow and foster as people are speaking into your life and breeding encouragement. It's a place where you can come together and organize for charity and for justice you know, we can do a lot more together than we can as individuals. And so religion has all of these functions. It really is a movement. I would actually argue that Christianity, though it's labeled as a religion, and it's okay that we accept 
that Christianity is a religion. I'd actually say it's more of a movement with religious characteristics. But everything, this happens all the time. Every set of beliefs and every faith organizes itself into a religion in some fashion. When you think about it, you immediately think of this. You immediately think of Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism and Christianity. You think of those as religions, but there's more things that are religious, right? Think about politics. You have a common set of beliefs where people come together and they find community and they open up places of dialogue and learning communities and they organize for justice and mercy and they they seek to develop the talents of the people that are within their party. These are very religious underpinnings. Uh, There's a movement now among atheists that they want to create a secular religion. They want to take all of the aspects of the institutionalization of religion. They want to bring it to secularism because they can see that it's it's more successful. They can market, they can promote, they can do more things together as a community than apart. And you've all met friend groups, right? Uh, Cliques that seem very religious. There's religion in, in so many different set of beliefs. But tonight in this passage, Paul is talking to a group of people, not saying that it's wrong to be a part of a religion as an organization or as a movement, but it is wrong and it is dangerous to think that faith plus works or plus religion equals salvation. See, the churches here, the book is called the book of Galatians. It's really a letter to a whole bunch of churches in this region in modern day Turkey. And what's happened is they've been convinced that It's not only faith in Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection that matters. It's not only that. That was like step one. Step two is they need to add all of these religious duties in order to be a good Christian and in order to actually inherit the kingdom of God and be saved. And they've actually been told, here are some of the things that they had to do. So they've been told, you need to get circumcised, adult circumcision. Imagine that. They're told that you need to start attending all of these religious festivals. You need to stop eating certain foods and then eat certain foods. You need to add all of these different rhythms and things to your life. Because listen, Christian, in order for you to be saved, in order for you to have eternal life and be with God eternally, it's not just faith, but you also have to be religious. You have to perform. You really have to perform for God. And you think about this and... and You wonder, why would Paul write an entire letter to a church that's being told that they need to be more religious? Well, it's because that's totally opposite of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is faith plus nothing equals salvation. Not faith plus works. Not faith plus religious duties. Faith plus nothing. And so Paul wants to write to them. And over the course of this letter, he's telling them, Do not fall to this trap that is promising you freedom and is telling you you're going to be a good Christian. Everything's going to be better if you think you can perform for God. So he's come to them and he said, listen, you think that you're going to add all of these things to your faith. Well, you're you're mistaken. But you can imagine what's happened to these these people, right? The people in Galatia were non-Jews. They were Gentiles for the most part. And so their spiritual journey was drastic, Okay, so a lot of them were worshiping other gods. They're worshiping all different types of gods. They maybe chose a few or they, they chose different ones at different times. Some of them were really into philosophy and so they were cultivating their own spirituality. Some of them really had no knowledge or no desire for religion or for faith or for belief in any way, actually. They just kind of lived their life and 
God and whether or not he exists had no bearing on them. And so in comes Paul and other people that are in the very beginning of the church, the first hundred years or so after Jesus rises from the dead. And Paul comes to their cities and other people, and he begins to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And maybe it was a series of conversations. Some of them maybe came to believe in one sermon one day where they've gone from this life of worshiping other gods or being into philosophy or worshiping this thing called the logos, which was this energy that kind of kept everything together or just being totally agnostic or atheistic. And they've had this dramatic shift to where they've come to say, I'm going to follow after Christ. I'm going to trust in the gospel and I'm going to live my life accordingly. And so they're, they're seeking, they're wanting to live in response to God, right? And these people come in that seem very mature. They seem like they have it all together and they say, listen, that's great. That's really good that you believe, but it's not enough for you just to believe and have faith. You have to be circumcised if you're not. You have to start attending these religious festivals. You have to stop eating these certain foods. You have to start doing all of these different things. And if you don't do all of these different things, then you'll see when you stand before God whether or not it's going to work out for you. And so they're impressionable, right? They're like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess we're going to start adding these religious things into faith. And so Paul comes to them and he says, guys, don't do that. Faith plus religion is a trap. It promises freedom. It promises freedom because you're like, okay, well, if I start adding all these things to my life, and if I start trying to work and perform for God, then I'll, I'll be free from sin. But actually it causes bondage. And that's what he says in the next verse, in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. He's saying the desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit. That makes sense, right? Essentially what the desires of the flesh are sins that have been perverted or distorted from God's good design. So we've taken good things and we've distorted them. Taken good things and we've perverted them. It's like we've been given Lord of the Rings and we chose Twilight, right? Or, or we've, we've been given dogs and we chose cats. You know, like, sorry, I'm just, jo- I'm just joking. I'm just joking for all the cat lovers out there, someone's going to throw something at me. But he's saying these things are opposed to each other. You have God's good design of the way that he's designed us to live that is beneficial and good and healthy. And then you have the ways that we're manipulated and to believe and the things we run after where we distort the good. And he says here in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. So let's break this down. Paul comes to them. He's saying, listen, you've been adding religion to faith. Let me tell you something. You have the spirit of God where you have the things that God desires for you that are good. And they're opposed to the things of the flesh that you and others and we as human beings naturally do where we pervert and we distort the good. And you're to be led by the spirit. So you're not under the law. It's really interesting, right? Because they were told that in order to be accepted by God and in order to earn salvation and guarantee that they're going to be with God one day, they needed to follow the law. They needed to work and perform. They needed to make sure that they're doing everything perfectly and put up all these restrictions that are very oppressive, but they need to do it so that they can be accepted by God. And 
Paul says, listen, you're to actually walk by the Spirit. You're to follow the Spirit so that you're not under the law. That you're not feeling the weight of the law because that's not the gospel. He's saying that the reality that... that this reality that's kind of bubbling up, that you're going to add religion to faith to give you freedom, is a false freedom. And maybe you've experienced this. I don't, I don't know everyone here, your upbringing. I know a lot of you have experienced this, where you grew up and you were told, in order to be a good Christian, you have to do these things and not do these things. And maybe you were also told, if you do certain things, you need to pray these certain prayers or perform these certain duties so you can get back on God's good side. Because if you don't begin to perform, you're going to receive judgment, you're going to have consequences, and it could be 50-50. You've got to make sure you stay on God's good side by keeping the rails in your life through religion, because salvation is faith plus religion or works. And all of these things are really oppressive. And if you've been in that environment, you've felt that, right? These restrictions that are weighing down on you and you can never uphold. And you're always questioning whether or not you're a Christian and whether or not God loves you and whether or not he's judging you. And maybe that's why I lost that relationship. And maybe that's why I didn't get that job. And maybe that's why I'm still in the place that I'm at right now because I'm not performing enough. And this is a false freedom. See, in the previous chapter, it's on the screen behind me, if it's still, yeah, it's working. He says this in in chapter 4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And you are sons and daughters. Because God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, Paul is ingraining in their hearts and their minds, and I would say in our heart and our minds as well, that the gospel is this, that God sent Jesus Christ to live a life that you couldn't, a perfect life. You can strive for, you're never going to achieve it. And he came under the law. He had the full weight of the law that we feel every day when we feel guilty and full of shame and we make mistakes and we feel like there's no way God could love me. He took all of our mistakes and he paid for it on the cross. And he was buried and then he rose. And what that has done is it has made us sons and daughters of God if we trust in faith. And we're no longer suffering under the law, thinking, is God going to judge me? Is he going to punish me? Does he not like me because I'm not performing enough? He's saying, no, 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 no. You are sons and daughters of God if you trust in faith in that good news. And the Spirit, he says, is there to remind you of that reality that is permanent and you cannot mess up. I was thinking about it like this this week. Salvation is, is like you're in a prison, And it's dark. It's like pitch black dark. You can't see anything. But you don't actually know you're in a prison. You're just kind of living your life and you can't see anything. So you're just fumbling around and doing whatever feels best and whatever, you know, seems to to kind of work out for you. And then in comes Jesus, who is the light, and you can like see everything clearly. You, You realize that you're actually in a cell. You realize that you're chained up. And Jesus breaks open the door and he says, listen, I, I, I want to rescue you. I want to take you out from the prison. And you're like reevaluating everything because you're like, I didn't realize I was in here and, and know all this was happening. So he takes the chains off and he says, listen, you're forgiven. I paid the penalty 
of your sin. I paid for the, everything. You're, you're no longer to be in the prison, so here's what you're going to do. Just follow after me. Trust me. Believe in me. Follow after me. I'm going to take you out of the prison. It's going to take a little bit of time, but when you get out of the prison, you're going to be with me forever. You're going to be in a place that is nothing like the prison. It is actually perfect. You're going to fall along the way, but I'm going to help you up. You're going to take some wrong turns. Don't worry. I'm going to get you back on the straight path with me, and we're going to reach the other side. But then religion comes in and says, whoa, okay, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for your love and for your grace. But listen, um, I I don't want to follow you yet because I think I need to, like, clean myself up. Like, I don't want to have any more bruises and any more scratches. I don't want to take a wrong turn ever because I'm, I know, actually, once I get to the very end, if I don't look clean and pure, if I haven't done everything right, if I haven't taken the right step every single moment, there's no hope for me. So you go on ahead, Jesus, and I'm going to kind of take one step at a time, making sure and cleaning myself up. See, that's when you add religion to faith. And Paul is saying that, that that's not faith. Faith is relinquishing control and saying, I'm actually going to trust you, Jesus, that I'm a son and a daughter, that you love me and you've forgiven me. Even when I make mistakes and when I fall, you're going to pick me up. When I take the wrong turn, you're going to bring me back on the path. Because religion seeks to maintain control. And I, I think the reason that is, is because we're told, as we believe in faith, in grace, which is undeserved favor. And you think to yourself, wait, why would God love me? Why would he forgive me? Why would he even care about me? I mean, who am I? I don't deserve it, certainly. I mean, you, you think about grace, which is undeserved favor. And you're like, it is really difficult for me to give grace to anyone. It's, it's even difficult for me to give grace to myself. Why would God, who is perfect and holy, give grace to someone like me? And so because we have a hard time processing grace, we think to ourselves, wait a second. I probably need to earn this somehow, right? Like God's given me this gift of grace, this relationship through faith that is eternal, but I don't really understand why, and so I think I need to earn it. And that's why religion as a means of salvation is an attack on grace, because it's taking undeserved favor and is trying to make it earned favor. Trying to make unearned favor into earned favor. And Paul is saying to them, don't do that. Follow the Spirit. So you're not under the law because you've been received as sons and daughters of God through the grace of Jesus Christ. And then he gives them this meat, which would have probably made their religious underpinnings go crazy. You heard it as Patrick was reading, and you're like, whoa, this is going to be a heavy sermon. He says, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Here we go. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And then here's the most terrifying part. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is where the desire for control and where we want to add religion to faith creeps in because we're like, thank you, Paul, for giving me a list. As if it's an exhaustive list of sins and as if this is the only, these are the only sins that matter. So you think to yourself, okay, I'm going to do this. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality. Perfect. Not going to kiss, not going to hold hands, maybe high five. That's like six inches for the Holy Spirit. You know, like we're going to like really be careful about this, right? Idolatry, no statues in my house. Sorcery, not going to read Harry Potter. Don't worry about it. 
Enmity and strife, that's okay. I'm only going to hang out with people I like. No problem there. Jealousy, okay, that could be a little bit difficult, but I think I can muster up the strength. Anger and divisions and dissensions, that's okay. Again, I told you I'm only going to hang out with people that I like. Envy, that may be a little difficult, but I'm going to remind myself of how horrible and messed up the people are that I'm envying, so therefore I don't actually envy them. Drunkenness, not going to drink. Orgies, that's extreme. I don't even high-five. You know, like, so you're thinking to yourself, okay, thank you, Paul. As if what Paul is saying to you is, make this list. As long as you don't do these things, then you're good. As long as you don't, you know, struggle with any of these things or, you know, you stay away from them, you're good. But that's not what he's saying. See, what he's saying is, is these things... And those that are like them, right? He says, and the like. They are distortions and perversions of God's good design, right? This is what we do as people. We take what is good and we distort it. Or we run after things that are not good because they're masquerading themselves as good. They seem good. And and what Paul is, is pointing out here is that these things are dangerous. They're harmful, not only to you, to other people, right? If you just take a few of them. Sexual immorality not only affects you, but it affects your current relationship, your future relationship, and doesn't only have to do with sex. It has to do with lust, and so it has to do with porn. There's a bunch of articles that have come out recently, GQ magazine being one of them, that says that those that, people that watch porn, it destroys their sex life. Not only does it destroy your sex life, right? It's a distortion of the good, but also a large amount of people that are in the porn industry are trafficked. So with every click, you're promoting human trafficking, right? It's not only harmful to you, it's harmful to other people as well. It's a distortion of what is good. If jealousy and strife and anger and division, these things are distortions of open-mindedness and unity and forgiveness and love. Idolatry is a perversion of worshiping the one who is most valuable, that is God. You should worship the most valuable thing in the world, and that is God. And so when you worship anything above God or more than God, it preoccupies all of your time and all of your attentions. The only thing that matters, it's harmful to you. And it's harmful to others because it directs how you live your life. We know that drunkenness is a distortion of something that's been given for our joy and for celebration and for enjoyment and community building. And, and we don't have to think very long and hard to think that there are consequences and harm that can come from that. See, the point is not don't do these things, Christian, and then you're good and God will accept you because as if you're really religious, that's all that matters. The point is, is that if you're walking by the Spirit, if you've come to trust in Jesus Christ, you know that you're a son and daughter, you've seen the light, you've been changed. And so these things should not be things that you want to have in your life. You want to see growth in them because they're not a part of the kingdom of God. Because the only thing a part of the kingdom of God are things that are good. And so you're to walk in the spirit and see growth generated in your life in these areas and others as you live. Because you're progressing to a place that is perfect. And so you should see God working in you through the spirit, bringing in those things out of your life. Tim Keller says this. I love this quote. He says, you're saved by faith, not fruit. But you're never saved by fruitless faith. Real faith that brings in the Spirit of God will inevitably lead to growth. That's why the next couple verses are so important. Maybe some of the most famous verses in the entire Bible. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. 
Again, our tendency is to think, oh, man, I don't have a lot of those, right? And you're like, okay, I don't, maybe I have one, um, but, you know, probably none of them. Or you think to yourself, I'm going to make two columns. One, I'm going to write down the ones that I'm good at, and then I'm going to write down the ones that I'm not good at, and I'm going to work really hard to do those, and then you realize that it lasts a day, or maybe a week, and if you're really, really holy, a month, right? And then you just like either forget or you start justifying why you don't want to be patient anymore because that person deserves it, right? That's why it's really important what he says at the very end. You kind of skip over it. He says, against such things, there is no law. See, a law commands you, right? There's a law on the many streets, drive 60 miles an hour. That's a law. There's a law that says pay your taxes. It's a, a law. It's a command. There's a law that says don't walk across the street until there's a green hand or a green person walking. It's a law. And these are commands, and the command is fall in line. Follow and fall in line. You know, and some of them we obey, or we should at least pay our taxes. Some of them were like 60 miles an hour is way too slow. I'm not going to do that. And some of them, if you live in Miami, you don't even know exist, right? Like, wait, you're supposed to walk with the green hand? I didn't even know what that thing was for. See, but we take this mentality and we bring it into Christianity, right? We, we take these commands and we think, okay, I, I need to believe and trust in God. I need to trust in the gospel of grace and Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. And I need to follow and fall in line or else God's not going to love me. He's not going to forgive me. I'm, it's going to be kind of hit or miss. And so what happens is we as Christians become known for what we're against and not what we're for. Because we take the fruit of the spirit and we make it the fruit of the self. As if what Paul is saying is that we're supposed to generate all of these things in our life as if we have the ability to do so. But he says there's no law, meaning there's no command. Against such things, there is no command. If you've ever planted something before, you know that when you put a seed in the ground, you don't put it in the ground and cover it with dirt and then say, grow, Right? You'll be doing that for a long time. It won't grow. And if you're like me, it just will never grow. But you put it in the ground and you wait. It grows on its own. As the sun beats down and as the water comes, the seed will grow. And then when it becomes a tree, miraculously, it grows to become a tree. And you don't walk out back and say, now I have a tree. And you say, produce fruit. It's not going to listen. It doesn't receive commands. It leans in towards the sun and it receives the rain. And then naturally, organically, it grows. You see... The gospel is this, and this is what Paul is getting at to these Galatian Christians and to us. He's saying the gospel is that God has planted a seed in your heart through faith, that Jesus has lived a life you couldn't, he's died a death you deserve, and he's come forth from the grave. And through faith alone, you are accepted and forgiven and loved by God. And he's going to grow that in your heart. He's going to grow that in your mind. You're going to see things you never saw before. And if you've come to faith, you know that. You're like, whoa, I'm seeing everything differently now. But he's also saying that as you live now and as you walk by the Spirit and as you live by the Spirit, you're to be like a tree in a sense. Not falling in line with the commands or else God's not going to love you, but instead leaning towards the sun and receiving the rain. So you lead towards a son who is Christ and and you look at him and you focus on him. You remind yourself of his love and his grace and And then you receive the rain as the Holy Spirit is often compared to as the rain. And as you receive the Holy Spirit, what happens is he produces his fruit in you. 
You're not producing it yourself. He produces it in you because you're leaning towards the Son, that is Jesus Christ, and you're opening yourself up to receive the rain, that is the Holy Spirit, and then then miraculously God produces fruit in you. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, he says this. This is one of my favorite quotes. He says, Fruit is always the miraculous, the created. It's never the result of the willing, but it's always a growth. The fruit of the Spirit is a gift of God, and only He can produce it. They who bear it know little about it as the tree knows of its fruit. They only know the power of him on whom their life depends. So he's saying, lean towards the Son and receive the Spirit. And that's why he closes in verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. You see, living is the root of your faith as you live in the Spirit and then you walk with Him. And I want to just give you a few in closing practical things. It's not exhaustive, but an encouragement to you. I think, what does it mean to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit? I could say that, but what does that look like in my everyday life? And I think that there's a few things that you see throughout Scripture. And what does it look like to see fruit produced in my life? Because it, it should be a natural result of faith, but it isn't the thing that saves you. So I think first step in in living in the Spirit is you acknowledge the gospel, as we've talked about tonight. You acknowledge that God loves you and he's forgiven you. Even when you make mistakes, he loves you. And you preach that to yourself every day, that God loves me, I'm going to be in relationship with God because I believe and trust in him. And he's going to produce and generate fruit in my life. Secondly, you pray, and you, you actually pray and ask the Holy Spirit for guidance That means you have to actually block out time, which is difficult for us, right? You have to wake up in the morning early with a cup of coffee and pray. You go on a run and pray. Take out the journal and journal and pray. Whatever works for you, but you got to set aside time. Ezekiel 36 says that God promises to put his spirit in you so that you might obey his design. Isn't that great? He puts his spirit in you so that you might obey his design. So you should pray to him. And then third, meditate. Listen. Meditation isn't only for yogis, guys. Meditation is a very Christian practice, right? Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. See, when we're praying and asking the Holy Spirit to give us guidance, we also, we also have to take a moment and listen. Without distraction, without our phone. Just listen, whether you do that through journaling or walking or just being still. Or maybe you want to do it through stretching. So you live in the Spirit by acknowledging the gospel, praying to the Holy Spirit, and listening. And then you act or you walk in the Holy Spirit by acting. See, the Christian life is not, Dallas Willard puts this really well, the the gospel or the Christian life is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot perform for God so that he'll love you. No, 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 no. You respond to God. But there's effort involved, right? So when you're acknowledging the gospel and you're praying and you're listening and you're meditating, if God says, listen, you need to be loving to that coworker, you don't just say, well, I'm going to go to work today and be rude, God, unless you do a miracle, right? That's not how it works. You're going to say, okay, well, I'm going to go and I, maybe I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe I'm going to sit with them at lunch and get to know a little bit about who they are. Or maybe God is saying that you need to be faithful to your faith because whenever you're in certain situations, you act as if you don't believe. So maybe you need to be courageous. Or maybe you have a lack of joy and the Holy Spirit is telling you you have a lack of joy. So you need to kind of write down all the things that you have to be thankful for. And all the reasons you have joy. And maybe you're running after things that you think will bring you joy. And you need to stop because they're actually robbing you of joy. You need to act. You need to do something. 
And then lastly, you need to be thankful because God is the one that will be growing fruit in you because it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the self. And so you need to come together in corporate worship and, and praise God in small group, in personal worship, and just thank Him for what He's doing in your life. See, my prayer for you and my prayer for me, I'm in the same boat, is that we would never think that it's faith in Jesus plus religion or works equals salvation, because it's not. It's faith in Jesus, the gospel of grace alone is the means of salvation. But that we, as believers, if you're here and you believe, we should acknowledge the gospel. We should pray to the Holy Spirit. We should meditate. We should actually act. And we should be thankful as we see God growing and generating fruit in our life. Let's pray.